Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. I talk to lots and lots of HR directors and PNC leads every day. That's my job, right? And what I've come to discover is that you guys are really passionate people and you are dedicated to improving working lives of uh, your colleagues. And that's not what I always think, always had thought, I'll admit, but it's what I now believe. HR people, I call you guys HR superheroes because you really do want to make the workplace better for everybody. And you've often got a pretty good grasp as to the scale of the people problems in your company. Even if you don't know exactly how to solve them, you're the one who everybody comes to when the shit hits the fan. So you know exactly what's going on and who's causing the problems and who's got the issues that needs help. And you you will have a clue as to what kind of help can be given um, or should be given. Um, and it's rarely do I ever hear any, anybody saying, well, they come and talk to me and that's sufficient because you know it's not. So when I think about what the biggest barrier to getting that help is um, that I hear from you, from HR, by far and away, the biggest objection we get is cost. Spending on employee well-being is often seen as discretionary, if not by HR, then by the rest of the C-suite. There is never a budget that's been set aside for this kind of work, for this kind of um, people management work, the work of engaging your employees on their own mental health and well-being, supporting them with it, training your managers to be able to normalize the mental well-being conversation and making sure that your culture supports good mental health and well-being. It's it's a relatively new thing post-pandemic that organizations are focused on this and so few have set aside sufficient budget. So even if you have got stuff for a well-being budget put away, it's usually too small to do the work that you you know you need to do. And that's because well-being has been seen as something other. It's like an optional extra, but it really isn't. We think it's part of culture and it's something that's fundamental to any organization's success. If you get workplace well-being right, then everything else falls into place. But if you get it wrong, then it has a knock-on impact on every other critical success factor. I say it all the time, but good mental health is good business. So in this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion, we're going to look at how workplace well-being can be your secret weapon to employee retention. The first and perhaps the most obvious point is that there is this intrinsic link between well-being and workplace productivity. We've talked about it before, haven't we, over yeah. different episodes, but um, it's not just about doing the right thing, but it's about doing what's right from a commercial perspective, focusing on, on your employees' mental health and their well-being 
making sure that they're fit for work, both physically and mentally, isn't just the morally right thing. It's the financially responsible thing for an organization to do. Shareholders and your your bosses, consequently, the MDs, the CFOs, they cannot justify investing significant amounts of money on anything purely on the basis of morality, even if I or you think that they should, right? They have a job to do. There's a dedication that your or a responsibility that your CEO has to the shareholders to bring the best return on investment. So even if something is morally right, it may not make financial sense. And therefore, investment in that area has to be very carefully thought through, right? And on that basis, CFOs and C-suites need to be persuaded by the facts and not the feelings, right? And often when you're talking about well-being, when you're talking about how people feel, when you're talking about your company culture, we focus on the feeling side of stuff and forget that we're here to do a job. It's a business. The fact is, though, well-being is the single biggest factor when it comes to workplace productivity. So the facts are on our side, as well as the feelings. 67% of organizations recognize stress as having the biggest impact on business performance. And that's according to Aon's Working Well Survey in 2021. Stress, anxiety, depression, burnout, all signs of mental ill health, they have a significant impact on not just the affected individual's performance, but on the whole team. If you scale that up, then it has an impact on the department, on the business line, and the company as a whole. It's significant. We talk it, about something like called the well-being black hole. Yeah, What's exactly. that? So the well-being black hole is just this um, idea that because sometimes we get this, we get this a lot where um, HR um, directors or people managing or whatever we say something like, "I just feel like um, one person gets sick and then." everybody start falling like dominoes, like they're taking the piss or something. Um, and it was in the early days when, you know, people were still not quite clear about mental health and stuff. So now it's like, no, they're not taking the piss. It just, it's, it's, they're falling like dominoes, right? So it affects one person in a team. So we're going to say one in four people, right? So one in four people, we have four people in the team plus a manager who make it five. One person is sick. They're probably coming back from um, maternity, uh, they have postpartum depression and that's been handled. So they're having a therapy, they're having medication, but it's a phase return back into work. So this person is already slightly diminished in coming in. So you might say their performance or their productivity level might be 60%. Okay, they're getting there, but they're not there 100% yet. Um, and so this team is still functioning, no no problem. But what happened when a second member of a team start to have problems in their life? So somebody now going through a divorce all of a sudden. Now, that person's um, productivity is obviously going to drop. They're going to be emotional, emotionally drained, uh, things happening, maybe separation of kids, all these things that could affect a person, their mental health and, of course, their productivity. Now, you can imagine that person where everybody else wants to rally around them, want to support them, but that's now the second person who's going through some pressures. So what happened to the other two members of the team? <laughs> 
So they also um, have to now carry quite a lot. They want to be helpful. I'll take that caseload. I'll help out. And then they put more pressure on themselves. And all of a sudden, the pressure and it's no longer matched to the capability or ability that they did have before. So they then feel under pressure and also stress. So what happens to them? Somebody might, one of them might go, oh God, I used to have anxiety when I'm under pressure from university, but I haven't had that pressure in a while, but I didn't expect it to come back at <laughs> this stage in my career. And there it is, you know. So this is that whole idea that everybody gets sucked into it. And it's not just the people in, at work, but the people at home, right? So you can imagine that boss who is now more stressed out. All his, you know, half of his team is not functioning, or at least struggling. You know, they're not going to meet their targets to be able to get the bonuses. That bonuses, bonus was supposed to be part of, you know, the fund for a great holiday. You know, it's past the pandemic, let's go out, let's take the kids to this fantastic holiday. Now you can't afford it. Now your wife pissed off. So there's this kind of, it's a knock-on effect. People will get affected by just one person's inability or one person who would happen to have been struggling. So it's not just one person. It will have a knock-on effect, which is why we want people to sort of attend to it much earlier than they tend to. They always kind of allow this one person who's not well to go, oh, no, it's fine, I'll be, I'll be, it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And then you're the lovely boss. You really want it to be okay, but that's just wishful thinking there. <laughs> so what, what I want people to go, yeah, how is it going to be better? Who's doing treatment? Where are you going for support? And to have the conversation, to be fair, like managers have to be able to, be trained to have it. You can't just have it. You're not a therapist. So, you know, mm. just trying to say. Anyway, because that's the, the well-being black, black hole. hole. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it needed its own song. Yeah, the well-being black hole. No, I don't know. <laughs> what kind of song would it be? I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, hip-hop. Or no, rock. why would it the, be rock? Did, did you say hip-hop because it's black hole? No. No, hey. <laughs> no I, 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 <laughs> I was thinking just like, you know, big drums, and then it sucked. But anyway, and moving on. I think the thing is, if you want to drive company performance, if you want to increase profits and decrease costs, and who doesn't? Let's face it, we all do. Then you've got to invest in your people, in their development and their well-being. In view of the fact that mental health costs a staggering amount, poor mental health is expensive then there is an economic argument that says that employers investing in in measures to tackle or hopefully prevent the problem from occurring will reduce their costs. Deloitte did some analysis back in, in 2022, and that showed that if an employer used measures to improve the mental health of their employees, it could re- yield a return on average average of five pounds for every pound spent. Let me say that again for the people in the back. Spend one pound on an effective well-being intervention and you get five pounds back. If you're wondering how you were going to persuade with facts and not feelings, it's that. A five to one return on investment. So, I mean, the Deloitte report last year did show that the cost of employers of poor mental health from absenteeism, pregnantism, and labour turnover in 2020-2021 increased by 25% compared to the 2019 figures, okay? So, 
So now approximately 56 billion. Now, pregnancy remains the highest of the three cost categories, um, but the total cost increase, you know, attribute to higher labor turnovers. And, and the reason why I wanted to mention that is pregnancy is very, very hard to measure that, isn't it? After absenteeism, the person is not at work, so you can almost mitigate, you can predict it, you can calculate based on that. But how do you calculate on people who are in the office or at work or on duty, but you can't measure their productivity at the time except after the fact, you know, end of the year when you're like, oh my God, we haven't, you know, earned as much money or whatever. So that's still an issue there, which is why when people aren't talking about what's going on for them, people don't feel psychologically safe, that's where the increase in pregnancy then will come about. And so this is not a tangible, it's not something that you can just measure. You have to actively do something about it and that's why it's a culture change. It's only culture changing that will help with presentism. We talked about the great recognition last year, um, and in many ways, it's because of the result of people feeling dissatisfied in the workplace and not feeling safe enough to say that they were dissatisfied in the first place. Or maybe they kind of said it, but you know, it the fell leadership, yeah, fell in death. Your leadership didn't listen. And usually, often for HR, you're like, I didn't even know this was a problem. I didn't know this was going on because usually. By the time it gets to you, kind of a bit too late now, you know. So it's all about what's happening on the uh, in the team within the teams, and how can that be mitigated much earlier? That's what I would say, and that will help with the return of investment that you know you were saying in God. You should spend one pound to get five pound back. Yeah. Okay. So here's the other thoughts I was thinking: if you equip your leaders uh, to manage employee mental health then they can manage other sensitive topics like menopause, DEI, that kind of stuff. Because I see that a lot where we have separate menopause training, um, separate DEI conversation. I think they should be separate in a way, but I, I think what I'm trying to get at is it's the same skill set you're going to need. You might need more information about what menopause is and how to look out for it. There's that bit there, that's important. But having conversation with someone who is struggling, whatever is the trigger of their struggle, we still need people to have conversations so that you and the manager and their team can come up with a way that they can somehow resolve this issue, right? So it's easy to pigeonhole mental health as a type of niche topic, only affecting a small minority of your workforce. But we know from all the research that it's affecting a hell of a lot more than that. It's affecting one in four people, one in five, depending on the place, right? And in the UK today, it's one in four, one in five, like I said, in some places, compared to one in 10 before the pandemic, okay? So that's a massive difference. And somebody did ask the other day, did those stats include people who didn't report that they had some mental health issues or something? No, it doesn't include that, that. But I guess we sort of imagine that they'd account for the people who are not reporting on it. But this was that was based on BMA, you know, out of 10 people who come to the GP, one person will be um, diagnosed with having a mental health issue or something that needs referral or something. And then it became one in four in pandemic and it's still probably still similar now. So what's more, employees dealing with other life-altering challenges like having no children, <laughs> bereavement, which a lot of people experienced during the pandemic through COVID, but other natural, normal bereavement that you would go in a normal life cycle. But even more particularly, people who 
did not seek treatment for physical health stuff um, and became too late. People like cancer and stuff where we weren't caught on time because people didn't want to go to the hospital because they were trying to avoid COVID. So we're talking about cancer, menopause, divorce, often needs the same sensitive approach in their management. So it makes sense that you'd want to upskill everyone from C-suite to shop floor about, and provided you're managing people, to be able to manage mental well-being and to support other people who are struggling. Now, just to be clear, I am not, and we are not expecting line managers to suddenly be therapists. That is still not your job. It's not. That's a specialist um, skill set. What we are saying is that there are ways to upgrade you so that you can spot signs much earlier. You can have conversation without feeling wonky about it. You can encourage someone who would have been reluctant to go and seek help to actually call the doctor. You can encourage someone to actively go and book themselves a therapist. You can actively encourage someone to pick up the phone and call that EAP number because you're in the room with them, supporting them with it. You know, they're making their calls and having a conversation with EAP. Why are you going to get them a cup of coffee or something? This is part of the empathetic leadership that we are all about and we think it was required now. It's been the missing link for a while and there's no more reason why we can't carry on doing that. We've, we've passed the stage where we can just pretend to go back to the old way of managing people, pretending that, that what happens to them at home is not our business. It is now our business and it's our business for a while yet. Yeah, but I'm hearing um, and reading in the news a lot about companies who are trying to go back to the old way of working because it was a lot easier when you didn't have to give a crap about what was going on in someone's personal life. If I as a manager have a lot of stuff to deal with, why do I have to deal with the fact that Sandra's husband's been stepping out on her with her cousin and now she can't do her duties? It shouldn't be my problem, Sandra. Just get your marriage sorted and come to the office and do your job. (laughs) Unfortunately, that is not the world today. The world today also does not respond to that old, tried and true, well, my door's always open for you, Sandra. You come in anytime. Listen, if I spot that Sandra isn't right um, and I and I ask her, how are you? And she says, yeah, I'm fine. And I know she's not really fine. I need to do more than just say, well, my door's always open, love. You come through. Because I know full well Sandra is unlikely to come through. And then if she does, what the hell am I going to do now? That's <laughs> bloody awkward. And you need to be able to feel comfortable in how you have those conversations. It doesn't come naturally. Not even to those of us who are really good with people does it come naturally. It requires certain skills. And like any skill, it can be taught. It needs to be practiced. It then becomes perfected over time. And that's why. What we do, we don't we don't deliver one or two hour leadership workshops. We invest our time and your time in leadership um, programs so that you can really see that change and growth and development happening. And it genuinely works. It really does. We've had so many clients coming back with their success stories. Um, and examples of where they've been able to spot trouble and know what to do without having to feel the need to fix the problem themselves, Mm -hmm. which is very dangerous. 
and here's the thing. When you, with what we're saying, okay, how can it be your secret weapon, right? When an employee who is struggling gets the support that they needed from their team leader, from their manager, from HR, from whoever, you know, there to support them, what happens to that employee? They retain, they get retained, they work harder, they remember the support you gave them. They become even more loyal. They talk about what the company did to them, how they helped them. When it comes to retaining people, Mm. You have to care for them to feel like everybody wants to be cared about. I don't know, and and, and yes, the, the idea of money being a motivator, that's great. But I think the people genuinely want to be connected with who they are with. They want to be connected with the organization they work for. They want to be connected with the type of work that they're doing. So therefore, it makes sense that they will, they will be retained if there's evidence that their workplace cared about them, mm. right? So compared to the opposite, somebody who'd had some mental health problems, struggling with it, then the company didn't offer help or they did some piecemeal out of this whole help. This person, what do you think? This person will get well eventually, right? They will eventually sort themselves out, you know, all of that stuff. But they will remember how that person made them feel. It's the Maya Angelou quote, you always remember how someone made you feel. You may not remember what they said. Therefore, a an employee who remembered that this company didn't support me when I was in my worst situation, my wit end, they will recall it, which means they are looking to ready to get out. I think that they find an opportunity to be out, they'll be out. So this person will be hard to retain. So the secret weapon to employee retention is to care about your people's well-being and what's going on for them. But having said that, to be able to do that, a company must have a corporate culture that supports it. It cannot be just done willy-nilly. So if you haven't got a comprehensive kind of strategy around it, it'll probably fall apart at some point. So it it cannot be tactical. <laughs> it can't just uh, what I call Frankenstein it or mule piece where you go on Google and pick it from what Google are doing and what you know and this company is doing and try and kind of create a strategy out of that. So to have a culture that puts your employees' well-being first, and not last. So what this means, what she's talking about, because she stole my point, <laughs> what she's talking about is that you have to look at well-being from a holistic perspective, right? Strategy over tactics. Okay, so my background is in oil and gas. We're talking billion-dollar investments. We're all about strategy because it's too risky to think in the short term. Even if you're an SME, the same is true. There is no point in looking at mental health um, or poor mental health mitigation as a short-term problem that you have to resolve. Instead, think of it as what is the long-term view on this? What do we want to achieve in this organization? And that every company is going to be, we want a culture that su- supports promotes employee well-being, right? I'd love to see the company that says no. No. Okay. <laughs> so you have to focus on that, on getting the culture right. If you just look at, okay, what's the solution I'm going to have for this particular mental health problem, then it's like putting a fire out with a hole in your bucket. It just doesn't work because you'll try your best to fix something 
that can only be fixed by making sure the entire company is on the same page, that the whole organization understands, looks, feels, smells the same way about mental health. It's about maximizing your the impact of your investment, after all. There's no point in providing support to one particular struggling team if the whole culture is toxic and doesn't promote the good work that you've done in that team. So you have to create a culture that supports psychological safety, not just a team or, 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 or a department, a whole culture. You have to build a foundation of trust company-wide. And it sounds like a big ask, but it isn't impossible. No, no, it isn't possible. You take time and investment like anything else. Like I said at the beginning of it, we're trying to figure out companies that we'd want to, where you want to be in five years' time, where you want your company to look like in five years' time, and you work backward and you start investing in what you need it to look like in five years' time. Now, you can't predict every single thing, that's true, but a culture of how you want your people to feel when they're coming to work, that Monday feeling where they're looking mm. forward to going to work on Monday because they've got this project and they can't wait to see their colleagues and whatever. That is possible. I've seen it happen in certain organizations, even certain teams I've worked with. So it's not like um, it's in, we're asking for the impossible. It is possible, but it does take work. It won't be done because you've written it on some document. Mm. You will have to actively do something about it and have conversations about it and then feedback with your teams about that and ask what your employees think about this plan and how they're going to contribute to it. It's, it's a co-facilitation then, it's a co-creation then that you do with your people. So that's my thoughts on it. I love that definition you just came up with for what corporate what culture is. <laughs> well, corporate culture, it's the I think I've seen this in a quote, so it may be unfair to give you all the credit, but <laughs> the idea that corporate culture is the feeling that you have on Sunday night when thinking about getting to the office on Monday. Mm -hmm. That's what your culture is. Because I remember when I worked for the company that shall not be named, <laughs> when I was struggling with my mental health, my feeling on a Sunday was pure dread. Now, working for my own company, whose culture I like to think is, is awesome. remarkably different. Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. I, I, I can barely distinguish my feeling on a Sunday night to a Monday morning. I'm just as content. I don't, I just do not carry that Monday morning dread. I have Monday morning excitement except for when I have to do a run in the rain the first thing on a Monday. Okay, then I'm not as excited. But genuinely, the prospect of going to work does not terrify me anymore, but it did. And that that speaks to the company's culture that I used to work at. That that feeling in the pit of your stomach on a Sunday night mm -hmm. is, a, is a surefire indication of, of a toxic workplace. At the very least, the feeling, it may not be a sign of a toxic culture. It might just be the fact that it's no longer right for you as mm -hmm. the employee who work in an organization for whatever it is. So um, I, I do get the point, but I just want it to know that people having dreaded Monday feeling sometimes isn't the fact that the organization is just a wrong fit now and they need to exit whatever that thing is. But for the most part, we want people to feel like Monday morning com comes and they are excited to get to work. They're excited to see their team members. They're excited about the project they're working on. They're excited about the fact that they won't be 
treated differently, you know, and they're included in conversations and they're not mocked, you know. Um, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, really. I, I, I agree. But that that's fear in the pit of your stomach isn't is different to oh, I just don't fancy it. Yeah, I need right. to no, I I I I'm gonna stand by what I say. <laughs> It, it was a sign of a, to- of a toxic culture. Some people will still thrive in a toxic culture. Generally, the, mm. generally, it's the people who are determining the culture that will thrive. But still, some people thrive there. Doesn't mean the, tox- the culture isn't toxic. If you're afraid, feeling that of going to, then it's toxic. Mm. If you're just like, I just don't fancy going to work. I don't feel it's the right fit for me. That's not the same feeling that I was feeling. That Sunday night dread, it's if you've never felt it, then you're very fortunate. But yeah, it's definitely a sign that that workplace is toxic, at the very least, to you. So I stand by it. And at the very least, that employee will not be retained. Um. <laughs> okay, so what have we covered today? Here are the key points to note. The operational impact and cost of employee absence and attrition is high. You know this. And people are leaving, not just because they want to be paid more, but because they want better working conditions. 66% of employees would quit their job if they felt unappreciated. And that's um, a survey that Sodexo carried out. The pandemic has changed the way that we see our lives and our careers. And we're now clearer on what we expect from an employer. And if these needs aren't met, we'll walk. The best weapon you have is a culture that drives loyalty. Being a place where employees feel valued, human, and significant. So focusing on well-being is focusing on that connection. That's all, folks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show notes, and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.